Welcome to the nicest guy in rock and roll is missing, the podcast. I am in the midst of creating the documentary on my friend Scott Professor Piano Kushni, who I reported missing back in 2018. Scott and I were the best of friends for 10 years, and telling his story is incredibly important to me, even now as I'm in the throes of breast cancer treatments. So please join me for a journey into filmmaking, cancer, great music, and the story behind The Nicest Guy in Rock and Roll. Hi, and welcome to episode two of the podcast. I thought I would take this episode to go a little more personal on my cancer journey and and explain a little more of my time with Scott just, just on my own. And I will get back into guests and more fun times uh, in the next in the next ones. So this film is already deeply personal. I mean, my time with Scott, uh, you know, we were very close friends, and he was an incredibly important person in my life for ten years. So already the film, I I realized I had to lean in and accept that this was my time with Scott, our stories became very intertwined, especially at the end. So it feels semi-natural to share this side of things with you as well. And it feels at the moment like cancer has been part of my life forever, but it really has only been a few months. I started a crowdfunding campaign at the end of last year in November and really kind of felt like Scott was pushing me uh, from beyond and saying, like, you have to do it now. Like, I just felt this now, now, now urge to get the, the indie campaign going. And so I started it in mid-November and in the middle of that had, uh, had a mammogram. Um, so I had found a lump after breastfeeding my, my son. And, you know, anyone who's breastfed knows that your breasts are pretty lumpy and bumpy and, you know, blocked milk ducts and all those fun things. So I, I really wasn't concerned about this lump. It just so felt like something that come out, had come out of breastfeeding and it had to be a cyst, you know. Um, there's no history of cancer in my family. And so I just, I really put it out of my head and, and wasn't worried about the mammogram. And the results from that weren't looking stellar, so... I still, I think, put my head in the sand and just thought it couldn't possibly be cancer, uh, which was probably a good thing at the time. No reason to, wouldn't have changed anything and, and stressing about it then wouldn't have done much. So, and I had the, frankly, the indie campaign to work on. So that was um, maybe a blessing. And, and I think had I waited on the indie campaign, I probably wouldn't have done it. And here being in this situation now, so the campaign wrapped up on December 22nd and I got the call from my doctor that all points that they had checked, including both lymph nodes, were cancer. And that was on January 2nd. So the timing of all of that has uh, has just floored me but uh having the campaign done having the supporters at my back knowing 
that there are so many people who want to see this film made is really helping me get through this time, helping me just to focus on this whenever I can. And that's uh, been a wonderful thing for my mental health through all of this. And yes, yeah, so when I got my diagnosis, I was already stage three because it had already gone at least as far as the lymph nodes. So it was a really terrifying time and not knowing if it was going to be stage four and thankfully, very thankfully it's not. And I, I know people personally who have not been so lucky and I, I do feel lucky. I feel lucky every day that I am, can be confident that I'm going to get through this and that I'm going to be on the other side of this soon enough. And this is now just, you know, part of the tapestry that will make up my life. And the fact that this film is still on my mind just uh, shows that it's important to me. So I am going to just keep moving. And this podcast is a way to do that. It's, uh, it's hard to, um, to know exactly, you know, how to keep pushing. Uh, so when I have good days, it just... Basically, I do chemo every other week. I'm halfway through chemo now. And uh, so I have a few good days in the second week, and this is one of them. So here we are. Weird things I've learned about cancer since all this is um, chemo is not always the hard part, the hardest part, I guess. Um, a few people who've gone through it before did tell me, and they were pretty accurate that Chemo really sucks, but it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. And the waiting is the worst part. And I would say all that is true. Waiting for it, waiting for your hair to fall out, waiting for all those things are the, it's just when it finally actually happens, it's, I don't know, maybe just hit acceptance easier. Um, but uh, the steroids are something special. The, <laughs> that's, a, that's a come down uh, emotionally that I was not prepared for. And um, wow, that's, uh, yeah, roid rage, is a, <laughs> roid rage is a thing. Um, my husband has found that thrilling. And having cancer with two very small children is uh, a challenge, to say the least. But... Mostly, I'm just really thankful that I was able to have my babies before this uh, whole thing happened, and um, they're they're doing pretty good. Um, and I, yeah, I will share with you uh, something uh, uh, personal. We told uh, the kids um, I, I made a book for them and used, um, there, there's a great book called The Kid's Guide to Cancer, but it's just a little too advanced for the age my kids are at. So I took some of the pictures from that and I took some uh, information from 
a really great, uh, you know, there's lots of great sources on how to talk to kids about cancer, but they're the nanny group that I've connected with. And I found their information really straightforward and helpful. And so, um, yeah, I put a little book together and we told my daughter first. And then when my son got up from his nap, we told them again and told him. And, and it just showed my how much my, my four-year-old really grasped the concepts and how important it is to say the word cancer to kids. I mean, they, they, they don't have a lot of, you know, <laughs> they don't really understand the word necessarily and probably even older kids um, don't have a really strong grasp on it. And so just hearing you explain it to them rather than them hearing it from somebody else or hearing the word be thrown around and, and secrets are always more terrifying than the truth, frankly. So, um, my husband recorded a bit of that and we will, uh, yeah, you can have a little listen. So you don't catch cancer, right? It's not like a cold. Yeah, because so, it just stays to one person. That's right. And it never goes on and on. That's right. What did, yeah, it, what did the girl say? She's reading a story to her mummy because her mummy's not feeling very well. So she's reading a story. And you guys can do that. You guys can do lots of nice things for mummy. You won't be able to make make my sickness go away. That's the doctor thing. That's what the doctors do. That's right. And it won't. You can't ever make it worse. Mama, Mama, I put the bandaid out for you. That would be so nice, honey. Okay. There's gonna be lots of different things, and this is a weird part. Guess what? Mummy's hair is gonna fall out like this, Mummy, because the medicine is gonna make my hair come out. So that's what mommy's going to look like. And mommy's going to be able to wear things on her hair and on her head instead. Yeah. So so it can so you so it can so it shows you have hair. Yeah, I can wear pretend hair or I could wear hats. I could wear lots of things and my hair is going to grow back one day. You but can wear a neck warmer on your head. <laughs> that's a great <laughs> idea. Yeah, that's a neat sure. idea. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And mommy's hair will grow back when all the medicine part is done. Okay, when the cancer's all gone. Cancer? What is the cancer? Cancer is this weird stuff that I showed you here. This is this weird stuff and it's in mummy's boobies. You want to feel it again? There's a hard spot right here. Right in mummy's fingers. Can you feel that little hard thing in mummy's boob? Yeah, that's cancer growing. How do cancer go away? Well, that, that's what this special is called chemo. So it's special medicine, but it's a bit, it's very, hmm, what's the word? Strong. Okay. Yeah, it's strong. Very... Another word, yes. Oh, you don't have to peel this off. I like it. I know, don't do it now. So, mommy definitely is, yeah, has no hair now. And the kids are getting used to that. My son actually said to me the other day that, uh, you know, mommy, it's okay that you don't have hair. And, which is a nice change from, uh, mommy, I don't like you different. <laughs> My daughter's enjoying the wigs. So, you know, it's, uh, it's hard, particularly, you know, being surrounded by two little German-fested <laughs> creatures all the time. Um, you know, it's important to stay healthy and, and all that through chemo, so... 
that has certainly been a challenge, but we're uh, we're getting through it. You know, when people talk about being a cancer survivor and battling cancer, and maybe if I was in a different place um, with it, or maybe I will feel that later. Right now, it just it just feels like a daunting amount of medical appointments. Um, and for me, I, usually you would have surgery first and then chemo. Um, uh, we're going the other way because to try to save as many lymph nodes as possible. So I still have a double mastectomy to get through and then radiation after that. So these are the rest of the, the journey to come. But uh, yeah, and back to Scott. So I mentioned uh, in the other podcast that uh, I was a piano student of Scott's in my 20s and kind of from that became really close friends with him and and yeah, pretty pretty quickly actually, I started to take on other aspects and try to help him out with different things that I, needs I saw that weren't being met in his life. So that quickly changed from, from me being a piano student and also wanting to film him. I mean, pretty much right away, I wanted to make a documentary about his life and the stories that he had, the, I mean, his talent as a musician was incredible. And I'm sitting there beside him you know, listening to him play and he's telling me all this stuff and I'm just thinking it's it's a crime that we're sitting in this basement apartment and, and and there isn't an audience hearing this. Like, this is incredible stuff. And and so much of what he's telling me, you know, musicians from the, obscure musicians from the 20s through the 40s, like, going right over my head, although I was happy to learn. And uh, so Scott and I, we did a, a little uh, YouTube series called uh, Professor Piano Lessons in Blues, which I hope to actually revisit with some musician friends of his. And yeah, we, we at least tried, you know, we, we got a few things out there. It was so much of what I wanted to do with Scott didn't happen. And it was all a little harder than maybe I naively realized at the time would be, but I'm, I'm glad I tried and I, and I was able to capture a lot of, a lot of great stuff with him, regardless, you know, a filmmaker, you always wish you had <laughs> gotten more, but, uh, yeah, it was, um, having him in my life was, was really special and it, uh, he was a, he was a joyful person to be around. He was always cracking jokes. He was always, you know, having a laugh. He he was so honest and forthright about his past and everything that uh, he went through as a musician. And yeah, it it was a it was a, a pretty incredible time when I look back and you know I laugh he he was kind of crucial to my husband and I um discovering how much we liked each other it was a funny conversation you know whatever date we were on to say oh by the way I'm a caregiver <laughs> to a senior citizen musician 
and uh, if you want to be in my life, you know, this is this is part of it. And to my uh, husband's credit, he just said, "How can I help? That's awesome that you're doing that." And uh, and he loved me more for how I took care of Scott, and I loved him more for being on board. So. Needless to say, yeah, that's probably more of the reason why he's my husband now. And Scott played at our wedding and uh, in our ceremony, and that was really wonderful. And Scott was, uh, you know, he was a quirky guy, and he had a lot of, I think, the musician... I don't know why I shouldn't say that. I'll speak of all musicians. Um, but Scott certainly would get pretty amped up over a gig, and and, and then want to back out at the last second which was hard but he was such an incredible talent and it was just every little gig that he did every everything that uh, that we were able to set up was really fantastic and I'm really happy that I have so many of them recorded how can I call Scott the nicest guy in rock and roll well I'm sure there are very quite a few people who are very nice, uh, but to me, uh, he really was that. He partly because he didn't fit in. He was a bit older than uh, a lot of the other musicians. Um, you know, back in his early days in the fifties and sixties, he had kind of gone on to university. He he just yeah wasn't kind of um, rebelling uh, against against his family or anything to get there. Uh, his vision, the fact that he was legally blind was a really deciding factor. He wanted to be a teacher and uh, he was doing his final years in, in high school and doing all of his exams and it basically all of the reading and, and writing caused him intense migraines. And his father, who was a teacher, said to Scott, like, look, son, you're not going to be able to be a teacher. You're, it's all reading. It's, it's all marking. You're, you're, your eyes won't let you do that. But son, you're a really great piano player. Why don't you see what you can make of that? So, you know, you think of every rock and roll story. It's like, no, mom and dad, I'm not going to be a teacher. I'm going to go rock, be a rock star. <laughs> Scott's was literally the opposite of that. And that led him to be in a band with uh, a young Robbie Robertson and uh, Gene McClellan and uh, Pete Garamigis. So, yeah, it was that pretty <laughs> amazing group of people and at the beginning. And that led him to the Hawks. And so Ronnie Hawkins needed a piano player. His piano player had left the band and he only wanted Scott. And... Uh, Scott, though, you know, this was a moment that he could have had this, you know, would have been a, a real leg up for him as a musician. And he basically refused if, uh, if Ronnie wouldn't take his friends. So right there, that tells you a lot about who Scott Cushman was. And I will let you hear that from, from the guys themselves. So uh, in case you're, you know, maybe a younger person, and don't know the band very well. So Robbie Robertson uh, was uh, was a, was one of the you know the lead members of the band, 
and you may have heard this song, which is called The Weight. straight out of the Hawks. Uh, they basically left Ronnie Hawkins and created their own band and, you know, appropriately called themselves the band. And, uh, yeah, Scotty was right at the, the start of all of that. And this is a interview I shot with Scott. He's in the back seat of my car telling his story. This is about four minutes long. And this is, uh, how it happened um, for Scott. There were three of us, me and Robbie and Pete Deramichis. We all hitchhiked to London in the middle of the night. We got there, they were, Ronnie's band was playing in this place called the Brass Rail. So we went in there and I don't know how we got in. We weren't old enough, but you had to be 21 in those days. We uh, somehow got in, and um, listened to the band. When they, when Ronnie realized that I was there, he asked me to get up and play. So I played the last set with his band. So we liked it. He said, uh, he said he wanted, he wanted me to come with the band. And I said, well. The only thing is, I said, we got a real good band, <laughs> us three guys. So I want you to take these guys too, if you want me. <laughs> he said, no, no, I can't do that. So we all went back to Toronto. I said, I can't play with your band. And uh, we spent a whole other year playing together until situation came uh, was one day Ronnie comes in back to Toronto to play a gig and I'm living in the the Westover Hotel uh, with uh, we had this big room with four three or four beds in it so we were in there running up the bill in the hotel the bill got pretty high and the guy said, you got to pay this bill or we're going to have to, you know, call the cops or something. So Ronnie Hawkins came in. They told him the situation. He paid the bill. So he comes up and knocks on the door and said, I paid your hotel bill. I guess this means you're working for me now, eh? Like he said, I guess so. So that's when I started playing with Economic necessity. What happened? The bass player, his name was Lefty, I don't remember his last name, probably a good thing I don't, but he had stolen some money from somebody else in the band. 
so he had to be fired. And so I talked Lonnie Hawkins into trying Robbie out on the base. So uh, then I phoned Toronto, got a hold of Robbie, and I said, practice, uh, tell him you can't come because you're playing at a gig for a week or two, and then wore a Pete Trainer's bass and practice uh, Ronnie Hawkins' songs. Just listen to the records and play along with him. He was a guitar player. He, he specialized in Bo Diddley. He was very good. But he was a guitar player. But if he wanted, he wanted to be in the band so bad. I didn't. I was very uncomfortable in the band. I didn't belong there at all. But uh, he came down south. Ronnie Hawkins and Levon went over to England. And while they were over there, we practiced every day with Robbie. Then. Ronnie and Levon came back from England and then we showed him what uh, Robbie sounded like on the bass and he said, great, Robbie was in the band. So if you missed it, he said that, you know, he was really uncomfortable in the band and he didn't belong there at all. And he did tell me this in a few different ways. Uh, I think he was a bit bitter that it didn't end differently. He would have liked to have a, a, a different time there. I think that he was, as he said, he didn't belong there any, and it was not his scene. So he doesn't, have, you know, I don't think he ever had regrets fully on that front, but I think he knew that this could have, um, you know, maybe been a better, better path for him if it had worked out differently. But I think, you know, he was always so, so true to his music. And I think being the leader of his own band was uh, a wonderful thing um, that he was able to achieve later on in his career. But it shows who Scott was. Uh, he was, you know, uh, he, he stood by people and he was true to people. And if you helped him, he would absolutely help you. And I, I had that experience. He... I know he would have done anything for me that he could, and he, you know, if I asked him to, to play somewhere or, or or anything, you know, whatever he was able to give me, he was happy, more than happy to do. And I knew that he had my back uh, always. So, yeah, he showed that in many different ways. And another pretty poignant story is uh, surrounds his song Bourbon Street. So when Scott was uh, touring with Aerosmith in the early 70s, they were in New Orleans and there this there was a drug dealer who was trying to get to the band, particularly um, Joe Perry and, and Steven Tyler. And this was at the time when Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison had all just died of overdoses in those early years. And Scott just felt like this drug dealer was shady. And he, as Scott said, he wasn't going to let this happen on his watch. He was um, 
yeah, I'm not going to let this guy anywhere near them. So, which is, I think, a real testament to, to who he was and where his priorities lay. He knew that if he didn't distract this guy, that somebody else would probably take, you know, happily take his coke and, and then take him on to the, to the band. So uh, Scott kind of led him on a wild goose chase all over Bourbon Street. And uh, yeah, until the guy basically uh, got bored and, and left. So Scott, uh, yeah, he wrote a whole song about that experience. And we will end with that. So thank you for joining me on this meandering <laughs> topic. Um, I am so, yeah, so keen to just get this out in any way I can. And it's, um, when this diagnosis happened, I, I was pretty heartbroken that kind of all the momentum I was building up was going to be lost. And yeah, the, the film was a little ways away from being made, but if you want to listen through all of this and you will get the inside track and and uh, get to enjoy the film when it comes out. So I will uh, leave you all with uh, Scott performing Bourbon Street. And if you stick around for the end of it, you will hear some pretty awesome honky tonk piano. So thank you for joining me and uh, see you again soon. I used to play the sax, I can't play it no more. I played with Sammy Silverspoon when I was 24.
give me the little liberties I take. But while you're bending down there, I'll change the back that's round and give you some table sugar to take home. And we'll take another walk down Bourbon Street. I'll tap your money. I want to steal your feet. This is New Orleans, the land of schemes. Just a little bit further. Back. 